Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. And once again it's time for our monthly bumper special episode, and we're going to be finding out about the Hidden Leaders Report, commissioned by the charity leaders body Akivo. The report, which was published this month, explores how Akivo and other senior leaders in the voluntary sector can create a more disability-inclusive approach to leadership. We'll hear from one of the authors of the report, Sarah Todd, about what they found and what needs to happen now. And we'll be chatting to Third Sector's reporter, Stephen Delahunty, about the long-awaited Kids' Company verdict and what it means for charities. That's all to come. But first, Nicole Sykes who is the Director of External Affairs at think tank Pro Bono Economics, put out a really interesting tweet on Tuesday, which showed a data map of how long it's taken the £750 million of emergency COVID-19 funding announced by the government last April, if you can believe it, to reach charities. So Nicole published this really nifty little data-led timeline that shows how the funding, which was announced almost a year ago, is still working its way down in little dribs and drabs to the front line of charities. As Nicole Ma said in her Twitter thread, it's a really interesting visual that questions exactly how successful that emergency government funding has been. She pointed out that by the end of May last year, the Treasury and banks had issued 745,000 emergency loans, which were worth £31.3 billion. May last year, around the same time, charities were having to draw down on their reserves. So those tweets have come just as charities launch another awareness campaign using the hashtag right now to call for emergency funding. Um, Rebecca, do you have any uh, real confidence that they're going to be heard by the government this time around? Who knows? I mean, you look at this, um, you know, these tweets and they really are worth checking out. It's uh, at Nicole Sykes and then underscore uh, and they're on her timeline. And kind of the first tweet, she's talking about this timeline, um, as Emily said, of these little packages of money. And they're kind of, you know, little dots on a page, little kind of, you know, round circles of sort of different sizes. And then she overlays the amount given out in loans over it. And it is this enormous blob that covers half the graph in terms of just this enormous package of money that has been handed out it's a really like fantastic visualization of really really how thoroughly the charity sector has been screwed uh compared to others and in in terms of financial support um yeah and nicole herself kind of goes into like why why haven't we matched that kind of speed and agility is it that the sector is a lower priority is it that there's less understanding of how charities work and what they need fewer routes of communication between charities and government is it a failure of the sector itself? You know, is it about bureaucracy? And, you know, because it could be all of the above. Um, this issue about whether or not charities have failed to make the case with government properly has been, you know, a bit of a hot topic in recent weeks. Um, and I, I honestly, I've got a lot of sympathy for sort of umbrella body leaders, for sector leaders who are you know, trying their damnedest and have been shouting and have been working in, you know, really innovative ways and collaborating like never before and putting their egos to one side like never before. You know, I, I, who knows what else they, they could have done, to be honest, because if government isn't going to listen, it's not like you can take out billboard ads in the train stations nobody's using anymore because we're all working from home. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if the government doesn't want to listen, they're not going to listen. Um, yeah. And... 
you would like to think that you know individual and, and i feel like i've said this before on the podcast that i think individual mps have really good relationships with charities yeah because they you know they will know them from the work they do in their constituency you know individual ministers may well know that the, you know the difference charities are making in in the kind of where the cause areas overlap with their portfolios but yeah. in terms of government as a whole and listening to charity there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect um certainly on something that is as urgent as guys we need money and we need it now and yeah i i i'm not i'm not clear what more they could do absolutely but we'll be following along with that hashtag right now campaign this week definitely um keeping an eye out for everything which is being said and fingers crossed the government do listen i mean you know it, perhaps they will uh, there is obviously a roadmap is coming on the 22nd of february um, it would be great if we could see some emergency funding announced around the same time. So it will be all eyes on this space. But yes, I do think that the government could and should have done more to support charities in this incredibly testing time. Acting now might prevent more of them from being put into dire financial straits. So let's hope that they do actually listen and then act. Yeah. In the meantime, of course, we're all too busy worrying about whether it's okay to talk about empire and whether talking about empire, in fact, squashes people's freedom of speech. That's a whole other episode. That's a whole other episode. (laughs) Uh, Shall we go to our first interview? Let's go to our first interview. The Hidden Leaders Disability Leadership in Civil Society report, published early this month, explores how senior leaders in the voluntary sector can create a more disability-inclusive approach to leadership. The report was commissioned by Akivo to support its aim of creating a more disability-inclusive staff team, board and membership. It looks at the issues of stigma and the difficulties of disclosing a disability at work, the dynamics of disability in civil society and learning from disabled leaders. Report authors Zara Todd and Ellie Munro drew on desk-based research and in-depth interviews to find out what the current situation is and to make recommendations for change, both within Akivo itself and the wider sector. So I'm delighted to say that to tell us more about this report, we are joined today by Zara Todd, the report's co-author and a disability activist. Um, So hi, Zara. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, pleasure to be here. Brilliant. Um, before we get started, I was just wondering if you could explain one of the kind of terms that comes up in the report. And what does it mean to be politically disabled? Because I thought that was a really interesting phrase and idea. And I thought it might be something that our, our listeners may not have, have engaged with before. So politically disabled means that you consider disability to be part of your identity. It means that you follow a social model of disability in terms of your understanding of how you are discriminated and oppressed. Um, So basically, if you identify as disabled politically, you are acknowledging that your experience of the world is the result of how society reacts to your impairment rather than your impairment in and of itself. Mm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So looking at this report, what were the key findings that jumped out at you? The key findings for me were around the lack of kind of visibility of disabled leaders within the wider voluntary sector. Um, If you think about what happens in civil society, a large number of organisations identify disabled people as a target group for interventions from their cause, yet 
there is very little leadership by disabled people visible within the sector. And I think the fact that people felt that they couldn't disclose, um, that they couldn't be a leader and a disabled person because they felt that those two things were in conflict with what people expected a sector leader to be was a really big thing um, for me. It wasn't new. I'd already ex experienced it, but it was quite stark how prevalent the viewpoint was that they couldn't be open about the disability status in the workplace. In terms of recommendations, the biggest thing for me was that people need to start thinking about how they create a space that is disability inclusive because at the moment even though organizations are saying they're disability inclusive they're not doing anything to back that up so my colleague ellie's findings from the desk research were that of the 25 largest organizations about half of them were disability confident employers but only two or three actually gave any data on um, disability within the workforce in their annual reports. If you can't see yourself represented within an organisation, why would it feel safe to disclose? Absolutely. I thought when I was reading it, one of the barriers that really jumped out at me and, and which that I found, you know, being really interesting, um, which I think you've just touched on there, is this confusion around who is considered disabled um, and what having a disability or an impairment actually looks like. Um, there's a really, really interesting chapter on this in the report. So can you explain what some of the key drivers are behind that confusion and what effect that confusion is actually having? There is numerous factors that play into this. The first one is that most people are unaware of the legal definition in the Equality Act. And actually, the legal definition within the Equality Act is very broad. And so people with um, conditions like diabetes, people who have experienced cancer, would be considered disabled under the Equality Act, um, but people don't realise it. Also, although there's been a massive move towards kind of mental health awareness in the workplace, people still see mental health issues as being separate from disability, whereas actually legally people who experience poor mental health are covered by the disability definition under the Equality Act. In addition to that, I think that um, Historically, because of the oppression and stigma that there is in society, people have a natural tendency to minimise their own experience of impairment. So they will say, but compared to this person, I'm not really disabled, or I can cope, therefore that means that I'm not really a disabled person. On top of that, because there are so few disabled leaders in organisations that are not disability focused, I think people feel that it's not something that is acceptable within the sector. So I think there are a combination of people not understanding, not feeling safe to disclose, wanting to minimise their own impairment, but also not feeling safe that if they do disclose that it will be taken seriously or responded to in a positive way.
Something that really struck me, which you mentioned in the report, is that um, the discourse around disability, especially in leadership, is really heavily dominated by leaders who have visible impairments um, and uh, adjustments for kind of visible impairments are disproportionately spoken about when we are talking about disability in the workplace. And this just highlighted to me how little I know and understand about this. The statistic that's named in the report that 70% of disabled people have hidden or non-visible impairments. So there's clearly a, a massive lack of nuance in the conversation that's going on at the moment when we, are, when we are talking about these issues. So basically, I think at the moment there is a big challenge within kind of how we perceive disability as a society. Um, I am a disabled person, I have a physical impairment, but I also have a hidden impairment. And one of the things that I, um, I've i noticed, particularly since lockdown, is I actually need a lot more reasonable adjustments in the workplace because of my hidden impairment than my visible one. But it's my visible one that gets all the attention. So I, unlike, well, for a lot of disabled people, they have an active choice about whether they disclose because you can't see their impairment. Um, whereas for someone with a visible impairment, you don't have any kind of choice around disclosure. You can't suddenly go, surprise, I'm in a wheelchair. But you can't hide it. Um, it's it's just not, it's not an option. It's it's something that you can't avoid and so I think a lot of um, people with hidden impairments choose not to disclose because they don't want to have to deal with being pigeonholed and I think that there there is an issue about what does it mean to make a reasonable adjustment when it is something that for example I have dyslexia um, reasonable adjustments for my dyslexia actually do, actually mean that other people have to change their behavior whereas reasonable adjustments for me being a wheelchair user people just have to put a ramp down or make an automatic door or whatever and whereas i actually for example i can't read um italic font so if people want to work with me they have to not use italic font and that involves people making changes in their behavior which can often feel like a bigger a bigger deal if you're having to ask people for something like to ask for access legally there is already an obligation that places should be accessible in terms of physically um very few places are and that is another challenge for the sector in terms of many organizations work out of inaccessible buildings but um with adjustments for hidden impairments there's just a massive challenge because people don't know what to do it's not obvious they're not sure like what they should do and they're not sure how to have that conversation and you're kind of jumping off from that. One issue you raise in the report is what you call a stark lack of data in the sector about disability and people with impairments in the charity workforce. And yet, why is that the case? It, it, clearly, partly there's an issue about people not disclosing it. But, you know, obviously we have equality and diversity information in annual reports more commonly now, but there still seems to be this kind of blind spot with disability. I think 
in a lot of cases it's because disclosure levels are so low that organisations are scared to announce like the levels that they have it because it doesn't make them look good. Mm. I also think that um it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If people are using legal definitions without providing the wraparound support of explaining what that means, people are less likely to tick the correct boxes around collecting data and so on. And I think also one of the big reasons that there isn't the data available in reports is that people aren't asking for it. That there has been a historic acceptance that disabled people are beneficiaries rather than staff members and that dichotomy means that people haven't expected that to be represented within staff data. I think what you've just said there is so interesting, that expectation that disabled people are beneficiaries rather than staff members. Now, this report was obviously written for Akivo. It was written for the wider sector. And as part of it, you really dig into the dynamics of disability experienced within the charity sector. Um, As part of this, you talk about the charity model of disability. Can you explain what this model is a bit further and why it is such a problem? Um, So the charity model of disability is something that is actually very strong in um, the UK, partly because of our history. Mm. Um, So the charity model of disability is a model which basically sees disabled people as beneficiaries of charitable intention, generally um, either filling a gap that is not being met by society as a whole or often um, where government provision is not sufficient to meet people's needs. So historically um, it started off with things like schools for the blind and help for returning soldiers from the First World War um, who had acquired impairments and basically the charity model of disability assumes that disabled people are passive members of society that need charitable help from non-disabled people in order to exist and to live. Now the charity model of disability, like fundamentally it's not a problem to help other human beings. The issue with the way that the charity model of disability operates is it creates a power dynamic so a hierarchy between non-disabled people and disabled people where non-disabled people are always the beneficiary and never a reciprocal arrangement or um something along those lines it it kind of the best way to articulate it i think is the difference between giving someone a fish and giving someone a a fishing rod so um within a charitable model you give someone what they need to survive but you don't give them the tools to continue that survival for themselves right so within the charity model you don't expect for example disabled people to be contributing to society you view them in a very negative um way in terms of um resource intensive rather than 
resource producing and um basically this dynamic is particularly complex within civil society because the vast majority of civil society is set up on charitable principles to try and make life better for people mm. but it's how do we encapsulate the intention without perpetuating the systemic oppression and discrimination that can happen if you're just taking the intention in and of itself. So that definite need to move towards that more reciprocal relationship um, rather than just the the, the kind of... Uh, I, well, it ties into the kind of Victorian paternal model, right? Yeah. I presume of, um, you know kind of people who are givers and receivers, which the sector is still trying to move on from in a number of ways. Yeah. And and as is highlighted in in the report, this is an intersectional issue. It's not just disabled people. People of colour, um, people who have experienced multiple deprivation, poverty, all of all of these groups have a similar challenge with regards to kind of where they fit within the system and what that means for empowerment and acknowledgement of skills and experience. In the case of disabled people, it's perhaps quite pronounced just because of the sheer volume of charitable organisations who focus their attention on those groups and because of the social model of disability and the fact that we have a means of articulating disabled people's experience in relation to a system we probably have got slightly further in understanding how a system as in the charitable sector relates to individuals as well. Um, and we touched on earlier uh, some of your kind of recommendations around disclosure, but I was wondering what the other key recommendations were in the report for you, because yeah, where, where do we go from here? Um, so there are quite a lot of recommendations, both for Akiva as an organisation, but also for the wider sector. Um, for Akiva, it's about building communities of lived experience so that organisations can share knowledge and some process type things. For the wider sector, there are a number of recommendations built in stages. Um, and we've done that because actually what we realised when we were coming up with the recommendations is that some organisations are already doing some of the things, but they aren't necessarily doing everything that they could be on that issue. So I think the key things are actually the starting, the entry points, the foundations. So one is to collect and report data around disability in the workforce. One is to share information about access adjustments and policies that you have to support disabled staff. <laughs> Another one is to create policies that support disabled staff, such as what is your organisational reasonable adjustment policy? Do you have a disability leave policy? What Another one, and in some ways, for me, this is one of the biggest ones, is are you sharing information with people about 
um, access adjustments for events and activities that you're running as an organisation. Quite often in the third sector, we want to work for organisations that we've had a chance to engage with. But mo until the pandemic, most organisations weren't doing events in a way that was automatically accessible to a lot of disabled people because you had to find out was the venue step free is there going to be sign language interpretation are there places to sit down the number of events in the third sector before the pandemic that would have no seating and high tables and expect people to stand around for an hour and a half a lot of people with hidden impairments that's not an option and to go and find someone to go and get your chair is a big ask at an event. So actually having information about what access adjustments are available and a contact person to be able to say in advance, this is what I need, can you do it? There is nothing worse than turning up at an event and discovering that it's inaccessible to you. Um, most disabled people have had to do a lot of pre-work with organisations, like a lot of back and forth to find out whether things are accessible. And actually, this could be so easily solved by just telling people, like on the booking form on the Eventbrite. And if they're not sure, saying this is the person you contact. There was, a, I was having a conversation with somebody uh, for a completely different piece um, recently that was talking about um, in terms of getting people into the third sector workforce as well, um, websites not being as accessible as they could be. And I wondered if that was something you'd come across. So um, legally, websites are meant to meet what is called an A um, accessibility rating. The third sector should be aiming at AA um, level accessibility and then there's a third level which is AAA. At the moment the vast majority of third sector organisations just assume that their web developer will make things accessible. Unfortunately um, with most web related stuff aesthetics often takes priority over usability and if a if a commissioning person or organisation doesn't explicitly ask for access, they're unlikely to get it. It almost reminds me where we are with online accessibility is pretty much where we were with um, web accessibility about two decades ago when people first decide, decided to start designing websites and would put all of these really flash heavy, really pretty like websites up that annihilated people's internet um, speeds and meant that people were sat there with the whirling symbol for like half an hour while it loaded. Mm. Now, now, because everyone is now using the internet, anyone that was doing a data-heavy front page now as a third sector organisation, people would either start complaining at them or wonder what on earth they were doing because we know that people access want to access things quickly. Yet, when it comes to accessibility, partly because people don't know, and I'm doing inverted air commas here, disabled people, um, they don't know what accessibility looks like. Um, I have a 
a wide variety of friends, including a wide variety of friends who have impairments. And I was once supporting a friend of mine who uses a screen reader to access a website. And um, we managed to get to a point where their screen reader had got to a place on the website that I couldn't see and I couldn't I couldn't get the cursor out of this place and it wouldn't move out of the place. And so we literally had to reload the website from a scratch and avoid going to the thing that it got stuck in because it was literally stuck in a hole that I couldn't see and that was seemingly never ending for their screen reader. There are really basic things that people can do on, if you're using Google Chrome, um, Google actually has an accessibility checker that you can use to see how accessible a website is. As far as I'm aware, the vast majority of third sector websites require you to have a degree level um, of education in order to be able to comprehend what's written there. And I guess a question for my part, just more in terms of more broadly, you know, we've we've spoken about the fact that cultures in a lot of these organisations are currently not as inclusive as they, as they could be. And this is what is kind of creating these barriers to people wanting to disclose. If you're an organisation wanting to take practical steps, you know, I think obviously website changes and accessibility functions are a really important one. If you want to be trying to kind of flag to your staff that you are meaningfully committed to this and you want to create organisations where people feel able to disclose. Um, what would you say are the first things that organisations should be looking to do? This goes back to a previous question that you raised around uh, hidden impairment. Oh. If the vast majority of people have hidden impairments, which we know to be a, a fact, um, what are you saying about disability in the workplace when non-visibly disabled people are around? What is the dialogue that's occurring? Because if you are smiley and happy when someone comes to you with an access request but then proceeds to complain to your staff team um, when that person isn't in front of you, how is that person, if they're if they're a disabled member of staff going to feel about disclosure. This is not something that you just have to do for front-facing work. If you're going to be disability inclusive, it has to be a holistic all-round experience where you're not problematising people for for mental health conditions or for needing an access adjustment or stressing out because you've been asked for an access adjustment. If that culture is removed, then people will feel much more comfortable about actually disclosing what they need. If people see that when disclosures happen, that they are celebrated and taken positively. I also think that they're, one of the things that came out quite a lot from the report and from the interviews was that most people have multiple identities and a lot of the people we spoke to kind of felt like if they had one identity they couldn't have disability as well because that just made them too too difficult or too much and I think we really need to embed an understanding of intersectionality into the workplace and what that means for all of the staff not just those that might have impairments in terms of how that 
how we create environments and how we respond to people being human beings. The move that we're seeing generally in the sector at this moment in time is a realisation partly because of the pandemic, partly because of the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and partly more recently because of the not just NCBO stories that are coming out in social media is that actually staff in the third sector in civil society are human beings. We can't hide our humanness and our human needs from the workplace anymore. We have cats and children Zoom bombing. It means that we need to be more responsive to employees as human beings, as well as managing workloads and delivering for organisations. Thank you very much for joining us, Sarah. That's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you for having me. And we will, of course, link to the Akivo report in the notes for this week's podcast. So anybody who is listening can also go and read it for themselves. I would strongly recommend that you do. Last week, the High Court announced its verdict in the Kids' Company court case. The charity collapsed abruptly in 2015 and sent shockwaves through the charity sector. The official receiver was seeking to have the former trustees of the charity disqualified from holding senior positions. But the High Court rejected the official receiver's case and also ruled that the charity's chief executive and founder, Camilla Batman-Gelic, could not be considered a de facto director of the organisation. As we mentioned in a previous episode of the podcast, Third Sector senior reporter Stephen Delahunty has been in court to cover the case at various points throughout the 10-week trial and I spoke to him about the court's verdict and what it means for the wider sector. I started by asking him to explain the detail of the verdict. I think it was a bit of good and bad, really. So for trustees, I think um, the judge recognised that it's mostly a public good and that most are trying to be honest and diligent in the way they go about the role. But um, I'm obviously able to make mistakes now and again by the very nature, you know, the unpaid nature of the role. You know, for kids' company, on the one hand, um, she concluded that, you know, if the company was, you know, the charity was going through a restructure at the time it collapsed, you know, if it wasn't for the, you know, the sexual assault case that was being investigated at the time that turned out to be unfounded, that it may have survived without all that coverage in the media. But at the same time, even if it had a couple of months reserves, that was still well short of what was required for it to actually operate. But also acknowledge that, you know, it's difficult to build up reserves um, and that trustees were aware of that. And also that, you know, charities do find it difficult to persuade donors or, or the government or, um, you know, any other trusts to actually fund reserves um, or unrestricted funds. And especially when, you you know, you've got increasing demand. And, but I think that's, you know, that debate's been going on you know, in much wider in the sector. There was quite a bit of criticism for the official receiver's case because, you know, the judge seemed to think that it didn't seem to have a good understanding of, you know, the nature of charity and the responsibilities of non-executive directors. And then because of that, and this this came up in court and was a lot, quite a bit of the, the, the you know, the defence argument was that um, the case was not prepared in a way that was impartial and could even be said was purposely overburdensome on on the defendants in terms of their ability to prepare by, 
you know, one example is that, you know, some some of the trustees, for example, were given and, and Camilla were given tens of, you know, tens of thousands of pages of documents to look through. Do you know what I mean? In some cases, which makes mm. it very difficult to sort of um, go back through and defend, you know, what may have, may have happened, and you know, over the years. It's still, I would say, it's fair to say that the way it was run could come across as a bit chaotic. Mm. You, you know, um, the judge did actually say that it wasn't, she didn't consider it unsustainable, but I'm sure... And again, this came out in some testimony in court that if you were a self-employed, someone self-employed through the charity in particular, then, you know, waiting up until the last day or a couple of days before to know whether you're going to get paid or get expenses or whatever was obviously, you know, quite difficult and quite stressful. Um, but Camilla did apologise, you know, in court to those people that, you know, had had a negative experience in that way. So it seems very much like what you were predicting uh, a few weeks back, that, that the official receiver hadn't really successfully made the case, but at the same time, not quite a clean bill of health for the charity. Yeah, I don't think um, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of talk in the sector already, and I think I don't think the charity deserves to get a clean bill of health, and certainly, you know, on the role of trusteeship and some of the things you've already mentioned, that they certainly need examining, and I think people can take a lot away from that but then also i think what hasn't been discussed enough is you know its relationship with the government because mm. on the one hand it seemed like they had a really good relationship but then promises always fell quite short of what they were being told um so you know why was that happening and also why was you know for the charity you know the charity grew to be quite big but there's charities that are much larger in size now that don't have and have never had and probably never will have as close a relationship with, you know, that amount of, you know, three prime ministers, top civil servants, mm. people in the in, in the cabinet, you know, cabinet ministers. Um, so I think if, you know, if we're going to talk about the governance of the sector, but also the government's role and how it interacts with the sector and why, in some cases, you know, ministers would overrule and the advice of civil servants at the time. And I think... That is something that needs to be looked into in a lot more detail. Yeah, absolutely. And so kind of looking ahead, what do you think are the wider implications for the sector of the ruling? Yeah, I think, you know, Matt Hancock definitely has some questions to be answered for his role in all this. Because, you know, he was culture minister at the time that overruled, um, you know, the final grant payments, which is a lot of what this came out, you know, um, that three million pound payment. And also, just while we're talking about it, he also overruled civil servants to employ the current chair of the Charity Commission as well. So, you know, his impact on the sector and his role as a culture minister is probably quite significant. His impact aside, I think what will be interesting, what someone told me, is that apparently um, one of the lords is going to table a question in Parliament because he thinks it's worth asking, you know, should the government be reviewing the role of the official receiver in terms of, because, you know, it was made to look like it doesn't understand charities and how they operate. And then there's also a public interest argument in that, you know, we reveal today that it costs, you know, £740,000 or something for the trial. But again, I'm told people suspect it must have cost in the millions for all the pre-trial preparation. Um, you know, then you've got the select mm. committee here and, you know, this has been going on for five years. Is all that in the public interest and is it worth spending millions of pounds to recoup, you know, to look at why three million pounds was spent before it collapsed when you know three million pounds in terms of the money government departments stole out every day is not huge in you know in the grand scheme of things um 
And then I think, obviously, the, someone made a good point on Twitter about for, for charities, there's to be looking at, like, you know, how how boards are composed, whether there should be a unitary model for boards and then where trustees will sit in that. So for charity chief executives as well, a bit of a sigh of relief that they are not going to be held liable as directors in the way that this case wanted to do with Camilla batman That That would have set a precedent that other chief executives may have worried about falling foul of. Yeah, they partly overstated the importance Camilla was having over the other parts of the decision-making. Um and trying to say that trustees weren't holding her to account enough. I mean, you could argue as part of the restructure that Camilla had agreed to step down as chief executive, so they'd already examined, you know, the chief executive's role and how it relates to what the trustees wanted to do. I feel like, to be honest, for in terms of the chief executive, it was more for it was more for trustees to take heed of how they inter, you know interact with their chief executive and with the board, rather than the other way around. Hmm. I think that the. The issue with chief executives was that there was an issue with, you know, with kids' companies model that trying to apply company law to a charity and the bits of charity law around trusteeship and this non-executive director role um, didn't actually work. You know, they weren't completely, you couldn't, mm. comparable with each other. And ultimately that's why I failed. So I feel like, but to change that, I think requires changing law going through parliament, doesn't it? And... I don't think the government's got much energy to look at, you know, reforming those bits of company law and charity law at the moment to fit the new charity models and big charities and how they're structured at the moment. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Each week we put together a coronavirus care package of good news. Emily, what have you got for us? Uh, So this week I have the great story that a group of climate and diversity champions have created a new scheme to diversify the UK's environmental sector by creating a raft of jobs for young people aged between 16 and 24 who come from BAME backgrounds. The initiative is the result of a partnership between the youth environmental charity Action for Conservation, recruitment organisation Generation Success, the educational charity Students Organising for Sustainability UK or SOS UK and the Hackney-based mentoring and careers charity Voyage Youth. So the scheme is called Race for Nature's Recovery. It launched this week after securing buy-in from 35 UK charities and organisations. Why are they doing this? Well, the environmental sector is very white. According to 2017 research from SOS UK, just 3.1% of professionals working in this area came from a minoritised background. Race for Nature's recovery has been facilitated through the government's Kickstart scheme, and it's going to place young people who are currently in receipt of universal credit into paid six-month placements with organisations that have signed up to the initiative. So 118 young people are going to be supported into roles at charities which include Friends of the Earth, the Marine Conservation Society the RSPB and ZSL London Zoo over the coming months. And the partnership aims to place over 150 young people in roles by the end of this year. As well as their full-time jobs, for which each young person will be paid the uh, UK living wage, they're going to be provided with training and career support, which will include mentoring, interview training and CV help. And the plan of the scheme is that more than 50% of the placements being offered will be turned into full-time roles. Some jobs which are already on offer include roles in fundraising, social media, marketing and conservation. 
So I would just like to give a massive shout out to the partners who shaped this very tangible and brilliant initiative and to all the charities that have united behind it. We're going to be really keen to see how these placements uh, go and I will be checking in with it again in a couple of months' time, definitely. Yeah, absolutely, because I think the Kickstart scheme, there have been a few hiccups. It's perhaps been a bit slow to get off the ground, I think. And, and yeah, this seems like a really interesting way of taking a scheme and, and using it to solve an issue that you, you can already see in your charity and in your sector. So, yeah, good luck. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be an absolutely massive success. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guests, Zara Todd and Stephen Delahunty, and our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week. Bye.